Hey everyone, welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. I am your host, Rob Stinnett, and I'm here today with my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Andrew, my man, what's up? Oh, I'm so excited to talk about this movie today. A little Spider-Man action. We're uh, excited to have you all here with us. And just remember, if you haven't already, go ahead and give us a rating. Just click one of those numbers and give us a review if you've got a couple extra extra seconds here. We always love to hear uh, why you like listening. Yeah, and so you can review and subscribe. Number one thing is subscribe. It lets you get a new episode when it comes up. We also love reviews. Elise Chaffins, who's a friend of the podcast, wrote, Do you chew on movies long after you finish watching them? Then this is the podcast for you. Deep dives in the films. If you love movies, give this a listen. Thank you, Elise. That's awesome. Uh, if you post reviews, we'll read one review every week as you're posting those up. But now, Andrew, it is time to talk about the movie. Sure is. So last week we did Titanic, which is, I believe now, the third highest grossing film of all time. And today we're going to talk about the fourth highest grossing film of all time. I promise we're going to break this streak after this. We're not just going to keep talking about high grossing films. But we're trying to do one classic episode where we talk about an older movie and then something current, something that's come about in the last five years. So the classic was Titanic. And for this week, for current, we're going to be talking about Spider-Man No Way Home. That's right. Spider-Man No Way Home. The big box office behemoth. Very excited to talk about this. I just mentioned it's the fourth highest grossing movie ever. And what's incredible is this is in a pandemic when everyone's streaming instead of going to see the theaters. When so many movies are being delayed over and over again, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, maybe not out of nowhere, it had a lot of hype, <laughs> but smashing expectations, Spider-Man comes and just packs out theaters and people love it. Absolutely. Like, I thought it was going to do well, but I don't think anyone had the expectations that it was going to do this well. Like you said, the fourth top grossing movie of all time, it's the second biggest MCU movie ever. It beat Infinity War. It beat the original Avengers. Like... I don't think anyone was expecting that. People love Spider-Man, but this is next level. So what's interesting when it comes to Spider-Man is there's this question that's kind of come up, which is Spider-Man cheap fan service or an authentic story building on a legacy? So I'm curious what you think. Is Spider-Man just fan service or is there something more to it? You know, like, is this just something like, hey, we're just giving all the stuff for the fans. We're just playing the greatest hits. And that's why people like it. That's why people flock to it. Is that all this movie is? Definitely not, though I was worried about that when the leak came out that we were going to have all of the Spider-Man in this movie. I remember when that started to leak and then became basically the worst kept secret in Hollywood for a year and a half. I was just like, you know what? In the original Tobey Maguire franchise, they decided to pack as many villains as possible into the third movie, and that movie was garbage. So are we going to do that here, but just pack as many Spider-Man as we can into this movie just because we can and people would like it into the Spider-Verse won an Oscar. So they're like, oh, let's do that live action. Disney has been like, hey, we have something that works in animated form. Let's do it live action. That's been something they've been doing for years. So I didn't have a ton of faith that this was going to be anything other than, hey, let's just do this live action. For me, I have more faith in Marvel than I do kind of the other Spider-Man franchise because... In the, you know, early 2000s, we were just kind of throwing stuff against the wall, see what would stick. I think Spider-Man 2 is actually really good. But, you know, by Spider-Man 3, it's true. They lost everything. It kind of, like, unraveled. It was just like, hey, we're going to put this villain in. We're going to put this in. And then this person's going to come back in. And it just didn't work. But I have more faith in Marvel. So I thought this movie would be good. What I did not think was this movie would be great. And I'm right. not, again, I'm not sure how I'll feel a year from now. But I actually think this is a great film. Um, I Oscar predictions haven't come out yet. I think this could even be nominated for Best Picture. There's kind of a dark horse chance that could happen. And for if sure. it did, I wouldn't have a problem with that. If it won Best Picture, I think that's a little much. But if it got nominated, I'm like, no, I think there's a case for it. Because I think this is actually a really good, interesting movie. I agree. I mean, it does what you want a movie like this to do. And I was actually thinking about Spider-Man 3 and I'm like, why was that movie so bad and this one so good? And I think what Marvel has learned to do so brilliantly is they're treating their movies more like a TV show, like a really great prestige TV show. They kind of right. have that sort of respect where it's like if in Breaking Bad, when a villain comes back from season three that you forgot all about and then he comes out of nowhere. And then when he comes like when the dude in the wheelchair with the Hector Salamaca with a little bell comes out of nowhere. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, 
I know who that is. That's Tuco's uncle. And there's all this history and they leverage it to tell something really good. I think that's what Marvel knows how to do as well. They treat it more like a TV show. It's like, hey, yes, there's all these characters. But what's interesting about Spider-Man No Way Home is every significant character we had a history with. We kind of knew who it was. And they leaned into that to do really interesting stuff and make their own unique, original, fresh movie. Right. They've sort of passed the point where they try to catch you up. If you haven't seen other MCU movies, they've kind of reached the point where they don't bother trying to, like, toss a bunch of exposition to, like, get you on the same page. You've seen it or you haven't. A lot of franchise movies include a lot of exposition sometimes when they, like, introduce a fan favorite character just in case you haven't seen the previous ones. And Marvel sort of, I feel like they gave up on doing that in Endgame when Captain Marvel just like shows up to rescue Tony. They're like, if you didn't see the uh, end credit scenes for Captain Marvel, like we're not going to catch you up. Yeah. Either you saw it or you didn't, you know. And so because of that, they have so much more time to sit and develop characters versus sort of like rehashing introductions. And it's so interesting. And I've been thinking about this a bunch of like, okay, there are so many fan service movies out there right now there's so many like nostalgia grab is just going on everywhere of just like hey we have this ip it's been sitting on the shelf we're gonna like redust it off and make something and i was like how do they do something more here and the the example i would give is like in the early 90s cgi all of a sudden starts becoming a thing there's terminator 2 there's jurassic park that use cgi in a really good interesting way but the price we had to pay for that was there were so many bad like disaster movies and volcano movies and like Matthew Broderick is in a Godzilla movie that is just horrible. And there's they're using CGI in ways that is just so, hey, we can do this. And it was unmotivated. It was over the top. And they're doing something that's just like throwing bad CGI out. And I I actually had the thought of like, oh, did CGI ruin movies? Did CGI actually like make all these blockbusters just ridiculous? Sure. And then in 1999, The Matrix comes out and it's using CGI to do something so incredible. It's like, hey, we're going to use CGI, but CGI isn't the story. It's just helping us tell a fresh, innovative, interesting story. And I think that's what Spider-Man Home is doing as well. It's like, hey, yes, we're using nostalgia, but we're actually using nostalgia. We're using these other characters to tell a wholly unique and original story That's our own. And that's fresh and interesting. And they're using nostalgia to tell a story that they couldn't without using it. Right. Right. Like it's 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 not like a hey, we could use any character to do this. But what if we pulled in this cameo? Wouldn't that be fun? They're telling a story that would be, I would argue, impossible to tell without pulling in the characters that they did. Yeah. And and again, that history them coming in, it just like they leaned into that in a really smart way. And I kept thinking to myself, like, oh, I know what's going on there. Oh, like it added this whole other layer to it. And and you just talked about that in Endgame where it's like, oh, knowing who Captain Marvel was added another layer to that scene. But this scene like perfected that where every single scene it was like, oh, I know who that character is. I know why it matters. And they actually reward like thoughtful viewing. Um, <laughs> And maybe it's more so they reward people who consume every single thing that they put out. And I guess you could be cynical about that. Sure. <laughs> and I, I, I can't argue with that. But it is like, hey, if you're paying attention to what's going on here, there's a whole nother layer and level to this story in a really interesting way that I'd just never seen anything quite like that. I think the reason I was like a little tentative, I've got a lot of faith in Marvel. I would say probably like three out of four movies they put out. I'm like, that was really great. I really liked it. So I had faith that it wasn't going to be bad, but I feel like there's been so many examples of just crummy fan service in the past several decades. Specifically recently, though, when we've gone all in on nostalgia as a culture, um, I'm kind of curious, like, what are your like top three worst nostalgia or worst like fan service plays in movies? I probably have more than three. I probably have a list of like 25. Right. <laughs> um, but I can, I'm going to give you three that I've kind of been thinking about. One is, this pains me to say a little bit, which is Star Wars Episode One: Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like this is when fan service, quote unquote, was born. All of a sudden it was like, hey, we can use some old IP. We could dust it off. We can like put lightsabers and John Williams score. And then all of a sudden we have a new movie. And I remember seeing Star Wars opening night uh, and I was like, oh, I think this is good. But in the back of my head, 
there was this voice that was like, this is actually a really bad movie. And then I went and saw it again and I realized like, oh, this thing is kind of a dumpster fire. And don't at me if you love the prequels. Actually, you can. I'll debate you the prequels all day long. They're not good. Episode three is okay. But like episode one is especially just like, hey, we're fan service. Hey, that was Obi-Wan Kenobi. Hey, this is Jake Lloyd, who's Darth Vader when he's a kid. But it, it doesn't really motivate anything in the story. It's just like, hey, we're going to bring in all these old characters. Hey, here's Jabba the Hutt watching a pod race just because it was just like, there's no real reason so many things in that movie are happening. It's yeah. just like, because it's Star Wars, we're supposed to care. And I'm like, it's fine, but you're not telling a good or fresh or new or interesting story. So Phantom Menace is like my masterclass case for that. To me, the worst offender of Phantom Menace, because it was on my list as well, is the inclusion of R2-D2 and C-3PO. Um, mm. Like Obi-Wan and Darth Vader, I, I feel like you can argue of like young Anakin is like that is the story of how Anakin became Darth Vader and Obi-Wan was his mentor. So like they kind of have to be there. That's like a part of the story. But like there is no reason for Anakin to have made C-3PO as a child. There is no reason for R2-D2 to have like been along on this adventure the whole time. It's like that to me was like this glaring fan service. This isn't a part of the story. This is just like, hey, remember these two guys? They're here, too. And when I rewatch the prequels, I'm always thinking that I'm like, why are you two here? Like, <laughs> you are not needed in the story at all. You know, they're just kind of random characters in it. But it's like, oh, this eight year old is who made C-3PO. And like, that's how you're in the story. And it's yeah, it's so forced. Um, and and I love R2-D2 and C-3PO. So I've. I hate like downing on them, but it's true. It's just everything is forced. And when I hear fan service, like I'm interesting what the interested what the definition is for you. When I hear it, what I think of is like forced. We're gonna crowbar this in just yeah. so the fans cheer. They're like, oh, that's so and so, and they're all excited about it. But it doesn't have really anything to do with for the story. There's not a story need. We're just kind of giving a shout out to the fans. Right. I mean, and I think that's what it is, too. One of my, like, I think most disappointing movie experiences ever. But when I was thinking about this question, I realized that I think it's a problem with fan service was uh, X-Men 3. Was it X-Men The Last Stand? Yeah, that's what it is. Um, That movie is so disappointing on so many levels. But I feel like the root of it is that they were like, hey, comic book fans loved the Dark Phoenix saga. Like, that's such an iconic comic book arc we should make Jean Grey go crazy and turn into the Dark Phoenix. And the movie just kind of destroys the story that had been built by the previous two movies. It was an iconic comic book arc, but they like killed off Cyclops, who was one of the leads for like no reason other than to further this new plot line that didn't make sense. So much was done in service to comic book IP that they basically undermined the entire movie story they had been telling to the point where when they did the like prequel reboot thing they basically just retconned that movie out of existence yeah and i think that's a great definition of like what bad fan service is and it's such a buzzy conversation right now i'm curious like what are we saying when we say fan service and i think it's that it's like okay we're just going to throw this in the story for no real reason or we're actually going to ruin the story we've made to like have the fans like oh they like it this story matters to them versus like okay this is what we can do on the screen yeah, fans um, love this thing, so let's find a way to use it versus what does the story need. Exactly. So another one for me was uh, Terminator Dark Fate, which is like the newest Terminator Ooh. movie. And I, like, have, I, have um, not, I have not seen that movie, but I hear it's not great. It's fine. Like, it was cool to see, you know, Lyndall Hamilton again and Arnold with a beard. But just everything in that movie was like crowbarred. And like the whole point of Terminator is he's this robot that's replicated over and over again. At least that's what we learn in Terminator 2. And then all of a sudden they had to do all this stuff to make it make sense that Terminator's there. They're like, well, there's actually a Cyberdyne update that made it to where Terminators can age and grow beards. And, <laughs> and, and I, there's just like all this explanation of like why it made sense for Arnold to be there. And I was just like, oh, man, you're having to work so hard for that. That it's just like, no, it, it does not buy in the story at all. It doesn't work. for Right. Me. So right. that's another one for me. What else do you got? Um, I've got uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, Ooh. which overall I don't fully hate, but I have not seen The Wrath of Khan, which is probably a huge hit on my like nerd and movie lover card. But I remember watching it first time in the, in the theaters where it gets to the point where Benedict Cumberbatch re reveals that he is Khan when he's like 
in captivity. And he, he, the, the way that he says the line is he was like, my name is Khan. And he does it yes. so like dramatically. And it's like, I, I who is that? I don't I don't care. Like he was like speaking so directly to the audience of like, here is the twist drum roll that it kind of like almost took me out like took me out of the movie for a while. Wow. Um, not just not just for a moment um because it was kind of so so glaring like i don't think there's any reason that they couldn't have done that story arc but the way that they did it and set it up and like the whole press tour there cumberbatch was like i'm playing a character named john harrison and and interviewers were like but are you playing con and he'd be like no and then so then when it was he was like yeah like we we do that man you know like (laughs) yeah you were talking about best kept secrets earlier and i was like or worst kept secrets earlier and that's another thing that comes to mind of like, we knew he's Khan. And yeah. th- that movie did not even cross my mind. But I think that's a great choice for bad. Because I love the J.J. Abrams rebooted Star Trek. I think it's incredible. We could yeah. do an episode about that. But yeah, man, it's like everything about that movie. And I have seen Star Trek 2 a number of times. And a lot of even the plot points and beat points and that sort of stuff. They're just rehashing Star Trek 2 in a way that just felt like cheap and we have nothing interesting to say here. We're just going to give you an updated movie you've already seen. Right. It was I, I heard an interview once where they said that like everyone expects us to do con like that's the obvious thing to do. So let's just do it and get it out of the way so that then we can tell other stories we're interested in without the con thing be hanging over our heads the whole time, which I feel like is just a horrible reason to make a movie. That's bad. Yeah. And part of the problem here is fans have become so powerful. Their voice is powerful with social media and Reddit and everything else. It's like fans' voices matter more than ever. And fans' voices are tied to dollars, so studio heads are listening to them. But it's like, man, directors, if you're listening to me, if you own a studio, let me tell you this. Here's some advice. Give us what we need, not what we want. (laughs) Don't, Don't make the movies that we need to see that are helpful and interesting and new and fresh. Not just like, hey, we want another cheap, lame, whatever. And I think there's a really interesting line that movie makers have to walk between like fan service and then making a great story. Because I think when you swing to the other side of like, hey, what does the story need to do? What's the best version of this story that might not be what the fans expect? You'll get a movie like The Last Jedi, which, to be clear, I love and will stand on a hill and die for that movie. I think it's amazing. But... It has completely split fans where some people will stand on a hill and tell you why it ruined the Star Wars franchise where no one is doing that with Spider-Man No Way Home. Right. So the idea of marrying fan service, marrying what fans want in a way that maybe they don't expect or in a way that tells a story that is wonderful, I think, is a really interesting zone to hit because you don't want to make a movie that fans hate. That's not the point of a movie, right? Like you want to make something that people love. That's why I thought this would be a good episode is because fan service is so easy to do. There's lots of pressure, but it's easy to like force in there Mm -hmm. and it's hard to pull off well. And like we said, there's so many examples of like this being done poorly. There's very few examples of like this has been done really well. One example that I did have of it being done well also was a the Mandalorian. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a spoiler for Mandalorian. Uh, if somehow you missed this, but like end of season two, Luke Skywalker actually comes in. And there's this Luke Skywalker cameo, but it just it was so like refreshing and surprising and kind of out of nowhere. And the way that it used technology um, and it, and, you know, he was going off. He was a Jedi and he was going after the baby Yoda um, and it, it just all worked for me. And I was like, oh, that's a really kind of cool interesting cameos so i thought that was actually a really good use of fan service i agree and i think one of the reasons that it worked is the entire arc of that season was the mandalorian has to return grogu to the jedi so luke showing up isn't like a here check out this fun cameo it literally is the maybe the most compelling end to the story that they were telling it's not some weird left field twist i just want to give you a shout out for saying grogu my kids get so mad at me when I say Baby Yoda. They're like, Dad, it's Grogu. And I'm like, to me, it'll always be Baby Yoda. So good job always using be. his actual name. I feel, I feel like I go back and forth because saying Baby Yoda is so much more adorable. But like, yeah, his name is Grogu. What are you going to do? <laughs> so my last example of fan service that I actually really don't like, and this is this is going to like people are going to come after me on Twitter. I'm not really on Twitter, but people will definitely at me for Stan Lee cameos. Ooh. 
Um, I think the Stanley cameo in Iron Man, where he's like playing Hugh Hefner, I think that's fun because Tony Stark is still like a super playboy kind of guy. So him like going into a party, walking past Hugh Hefner, who is played by Stan Lee, who looks like Hugh Hefner, right? Like, like great use of a cameo. But then the forced need to put Stan Lee in every MCU movie for the next 20 movies. And I know he's like the godfather of comics. Like, it's like every time he would show up, I'd be like, I would start rolling my eyes after a while, like pretty soon. And I, I feel that way, especially on rewatches. Every time that his kind of face pops up, I'm kind of like, Ugh. like, this isn't a part of the story. This is just like winking at me. And I don't need you to keep winking at me. You like Stanley mob is going to come after you so hard for saying that. Like, yeah, uh, <laughs> I just I, I don't think it serves the story. It's only fan service and fan service that people like. So that's fine. But it's only fan service. And at this point, I feel like the jokes played out. I, I would describe myself as a Stanley cameo agnostic. Like I'm <laughs> it doesn't really do it for me, but I'm also fine with it. And I'm fine with it because it's it, it is that it's a cameo. It's not going to ruin the movie. It's not going to ruin the sure. story. It's just like. A quick 30 second thing for woo. It, there's the cheer in the theater every time and we move on. And it yeah. does play better in the movie theater than it does, you know, at home. So, yeah, for sure. But, Andrew, what I want to know so we've talked around Spider Man, but let's really talk about it. How did you yeah. feel watching this movie? Like, what were you feeling when you were watching it? So, when I went into this movie, I purposefully, as much as I could, did not watch the trailers. Um, mm. when, when the, when the trailer came out, I think it became like the most watched trailer on YouTube within like 24 hours or something. So I personally went in with as little expectation for what the plot of the movie would be as possible. And so sort of from the drop, I was really surprised by what the story was of Peter Parker trying to deal with the fallout to his friends, personal lives of him being Spider-Man, which yeah. I feel like I was just kind of on this ride and really enjoying it um, all the way up until the other franchise Spider-Man show up. And then it took this wonderful pivot into an emotional, how do you heal from trauma storyline that I a hundred percent didn't expect and was just like in love with. I think that's what was so surprising to me was how emotional it was. I expected like, okay, it's going to have awesome action. There's going to be some epic scenes. There's going to be some great one-liners. But how invested I was in the characters was pretty incredible. And I think we'll get more into it. But part of it for me, I think that how I felt watching it was it was so great to be in a movie theater, opening night, packed out. Oh, yeah. People are laughing. They're crying. Like, you saw it opening night? I saw it opening night. I saw it opening night, too. It was an amazing experience. It's electric, right? And so totally. my daughter is super into MCU. She loves it. And so she's like, Dad, we're getting tickets. So she literally woke me up on midnight the day the t- tickets went on sale to make sure like no November 29th. It was Cyber Monday. So we went and we bought tickets right on that day at midnight. I love that. And then we saw it opening night, dude. And it was for me with pandemic, with not seeing movies in the theater for a long time. And then when theaters finally open up back up, it's like you or one other person in a movie theater. It's like our movie theater's dead. And there's nothing like the crowd that's so there. That's so into it. That's cheering. That's laughing. You can hear the sobs in the room. You can feel it like just the electricity in that room. Seeing it for me is what was such a part of it, not just the story itself, but that it maybe is something that will save or at least give movie theaters a chance for going forward. Yes. (laughs) Yes. To everything, everything that you just said. Um, I I remember when uh, Matt Murdock walked in. In the first yes. few scenes, you know, yes. Daredevil comes in and the whole room like it's like I started clapping because I love those shows and was yeah. pretty sure that like Daredevil was done because the Netflix contract was over. So to see Charlie Cox walk in as Matt Murdock, I was like, I love this. And yeah, that was just a cameo that kind of served the story and wasn't totally necessary. But like it did exactly what it needed to do. It didn't overstay its welcome. Again, that took me into this wonderful ride that they wait, then wait, wait. used. So, so what I'm hearing you say is you're cool with some cameos, just not old men cameos. Is that correct? <laughs> I'm, I'm not okay with cameos that overstay their welcome. Like I said, I thought the Stanley cameo was great the first time, maybe the second time. By the 18th time, I just was kind of over it. Okay, okay. No, but I'm with you. Even that moment, I was just... Actually, that was one of the first big cheer moments in the movie. Right. And then I was like, oh yeah, I'm here. I'm here with all the fans. Uh, everyone's in their Spider-Man costumes. Everyone, it's just like, hey, let's let our freak flags fly. 
Totally. We love Spider-Man. Here we go. And it was just electric. And I think that's part of what the legacy of this movie is, is the first movie that kind of breaks through in a post-pandemic world. And who, who really knows what it's going to be like a year from now, five years from now? Like, I'm super curious. I hope people go and see more than just Marvel movies. Like, there are so many great movies being made. That's part of the reason we're doing this podcast is like, go out, see movies. But there is nothing like opening night in a crowded theater. And for me, that's a big part of the legacy of what this experience was. Absolutely. Okay, so next question that I have, what's your most meaningful scene? What's that scene that really stuck out to you and grabbed you? Oh, jumping into jumping into categories. Yep. So I think there are two for me, and I think normally when I answer this question, I try to pick a meaningful scene that's maybe like not the most obvious one, right? Like what was a meaningful scene to me that might not have been the like maybe most meaningful scene of the movie? But I don't think there's any way around it in this movie. And that's the scene where the two legacy Spider-Man show up and talk with Tom Holland Spider-Man on the roof after Aunt May dies. Yes. There's just no way around how incredibly meaningful that scene is. And that's the scene that puts the stamp on this is what this movie is and this is how we're going to tell an incredible story with these characters. Um, is that your scene too? It's definitely one of them. Like I, I wrote a couple of them down the list, but that's the one that you have to talk about. And I think when we talk about the meaning of the movie, I think a sub layer on this kind of the meta thing is what does it mean to play Spider-Man? What does it mean to have that expectation? You know, there's this movie that came out last year called Val and it was about Val Kilmer actually like his life and his story. And one of the things in there was like him playing Batman and just like what it meant to him to play Batman and being the legacy. And that's part of it. And everywhere he goes, even still, he's recognized as Batman. And so I was actually thinking about that movie as these three guys are up there. And I was like, this is a unique fraternity of three guys who are just Spider-Man and they know what it means and they know what it feels like. And it took me out of the movie a little bit in a good way where I was like, this is Tom Holland and Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire. And what were they talking about on set between takes of like all the crazy fans that have followed them and the crazy stuff that's like, they have this like fraternity that they're the only three people in the world who truly understand. And it just translated on screen to me in a really profound way, not just in that scene, but in a few different scenes. But but there was this level of like empathy that walked me in. And I think because they started their interaction with that scene and I want to dive into everything that that scene did here in a second. But I think I found the then later more kind of like meta stuff a little bit more charming where I might have been a little bit more eye rolly about it. Like when they are prepping for the battle and they're talking about like, hey, what kind of villains have you fought? You're like, oh, you went to space. They're like, oh, I've never been to space. That to me is like probably what it felt like to them to be on set. Like, hey, like, do you ever have to like hang upside down and yada, yada, yada? Is you sort of get those moments where I'm imagine what it would be like for those actors on set you actually get a little bit of that on screen one of the best jokes in the movie is like you were in the avengers is that a band and then like (laughs) the other two spider-men just don't know what the avengers is right uh i just thought that was (laughs) such a great joke yeah but getting back to that scene all right so like when they're all on the all on the roof and they come to talk to um tom holland's spider-man Andrew Garfield goes to say something like, hey, like, we know how you feel. And Tom Holland says, like, don't like, don't you dare tell me, you know, how I'm feeling right now, which is something I think we've all felt when somebody tries to come and comfort us when something horrible has happened. And it's something that, like, I've been told by counselors and stuff. Don't ever say that. Don't ever tell someone, you know, how they feel, because even if you maybe kind of do, like, it's the worst thing for someone because they feel so alone, so isolated. But what this movie did is they instantly turned it and it was almost this idea of what if an older version of you could come and talk you through the hardest moment of your life? I love that. What, what would that conversation be? Because you legitimately could say, I know how you feel. And though they had different stories and different experiences, that's what that moment felt like to me was like the comfort of being able to talk to an older, wiser you is something that is just like such an emotional experience to like just sit and watch these really incredible actors kind of go through, you know? Well, and what's so interesting about it is this is where everything we've been talking about really pays off. Like we know the scene where both of their Uncle Ben died for each one of those characters. Like if you know that story, you know those scenes, you know how it wrecked them. And so when they look, and I thought they both did an incredible job, but when they look and say, no, we do know how you feel, As an audience member, we're kind of adding something in there of like, no, you don't know 
what it did to Tobey Maguire when his uncle died. You don't know what it right. did to Andrew Garfield. You don't know how it wrecked them. Like we know their pain. And so them trying to say, no, we understand. Like I felt like I was there. I was like, Tom Holland, you need to listen to Tobey Maguire. Like he knows what he's talking about. Right. And that it was, and I was, th- I was thinking, this is so interesting. I've never been in a movie like that. where literally like an emotional scene from a movie that was made 20 years ago is being brought right into this moment and it's not quite a sequel and any, just all the layers of that. I was like, I've never seen anything quite like this. Right. And I think it had to do with the fact of like, it's not a sequel. It's like different versions of the same person. Right. So it's almost more intimate conversation than like a father talking to a son. Right. Of like, well, when I was your age, this happened to me. So I kind of know what you're going through. Right. Yep. It's like an older version of me. It's different Peter Parker's at different phases of their life with different sort of versions of wisdom. Like Tobey Maguire is able to give wisdom to Andrew Garfield at some point. And like you can see Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man processing certain things still. He's kind of like in the middle of his journey. Just like really, really smart. It's so beyond fan service. It's maybe the only great way to tell this kind of a story. And I think that's what was so surprising to me when I first saw it. I thought, oh, this is going to be a movie and we're going to get to the final battle and he's going to be about to lose. And then at that moment when he's about to lose, that's when the other guys are going to come out and they're all going to team up and they're going to beat the villain. Right. And that's what this movie's going to be like. Right. That's that's what I assumed was going to happen. So then when they spend all this time, like just hanging out and the, the other great joke and the movie is like when Andrew Garfield's like, did you bring your Spider-Man outfit are you just going to dress up like a middle-aged youth pastor i was just like i felt so seen in that moment i was like yes Yes. (laughs) maybe the best joke in the movie and the theater roared you know like at that joke it was like people were all in on it and so i was like oh they're really letting this marinate this interaction between the guys and like again the first half is really good it's engaging but that's i mean even that scene when we first meet andrew garfield and he's there and he walks through the portal And, you know, she's throwing the rolls at him as he's trying to, like, climb up on it. It's just like the way they introduce them slowly and take their time and then let him go and find him on the, you know, high rise up there. All of that, I agree, is just such a nice layer for me. Like my most meaningful scene is the moment that really got me out of nowhere is actually when he goes and rescues Zendaya. When he rescues MJ, like and you again, you know, the backstory of like, oh, he actually let, you know, his other girlfriend die and he couldn't rescue her. Right. And so then when he goes and gets to redeem that moment, that was, again, like something that I haven't ever seen where I'm like, oh, you're redeeming a moment from a movie before. And this is not a sequel, but it sort of is a sequel. And anyway, just that layering. And right. Ultimately, like he goes and he saves her and he brings her down. And I, I, I can feel the tears like I can feel like, oh, wow, this is really, really powerful for him to be able to find redemption in another universe or get a second chance at this thing that went so wrong in his life. I loved, like loved that moment. As soon as like MJ falls off the tower, like they use the same shot, like the same lens. If you put the two shots of Emma Stone falling as Gwen Stacy, when Andrew Garfield doesn't save her and the shot of Zendaya, they're pretty much mirror images. They're in the same positions and everything. So they're using visual language to like, match that up for the viewer and then i love how how controlled the screenwriters are and the director are of this of like not overplaying their hand like he saves her he says are you okay and then he gets super emotional and she says are you okay and he says like yes and you can see what's going on and then they leave it like that's yep that's it he doesn't like tell her oh i had a girlfriend yada 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 same thing happened to her right like they don't bring the audience along they kind of expect you to have seen it and by leaving it that way and like making you lean into what you already know and just giving you enough, it makes it so much richer, I think. Yeah. And if you don't know, it's fine. Then he saved her and that's great. But if you know, you know. Right. And so if you right. know what that means to him, then all of a sudden it has such a high level of power. The other moment that I thought was like similar to that, where if you know, you know, and if not, like it doesn't kind of matter was when and big spoiler here, um, when uh, Aunt May dies. When you see the glider coming up on its own, it instantly sends you back to how um, Green Goblin dies and Spider-Man 1 with Tobey Maguire. So, like, as an audience, again, you're ahead of the game. It's a flashback to a different franchise, but they're using the same visual imagery where you're like, oh, my gosh, Aunt May is going to die. Yep. And when it clips her, you go, yep, it's over. 
And then she gets up and she seems to be okay. And you go, oh, and you rethink it. But then as soon as she says great power comes great responsibility, you go, oh, no, she's going to die. They use both of those things to take you on this extra emotional journey in that scene that's that keeps you slightly ahead of the characters. Um, And I, I thought that was just like super brilliant. Yeah, it's it's such a powerful moment. I, I think, again, that's what it just made this movie feel like a roller coaster was like you think you know where it's going and it zags in just another way. And then it pays that zag off really, really right. well. Um, OK, so question for you. Is this one a Tom Holland movie? Two, an Andrew Garfield movie, or three, a Tobey Maguire movie. If you have to pick, gun to your head, whose movie is this? <laughs> so I, I, think, I think it's obviously a Tom Holland movie. It is, it is his movie from front to back. But I think that Andrew Garfield shows up to play. Like, he, he brings it and is given this unprecedented chance to redeem a canceled franchise. Yeah. Like his his franchise was not played out. It ended on a cliffhanger and then he got canceled and rebooted. And he shows up like ready to be his Peter Parker and give that character a conclusion. And I feel like he's the big winner out of this movie. Everyone like loved Tom Holland before. He was such adored and everyone everyone like Andrew Garfield. But so many people post this movie, like some of the online chatter, the articles that I've read are like, this Andrew Garfield performance is amazing. And he's throwing like 99 miles per hour every single time he's out there. Every like his eyes are getting teary and he's telling these incredible jokes and he's like so, so powerful. But for me, actually, like I wouldn't say um, this is his movie, but I thought Tobey Maguire actually did great. And when Tobey Maguire got out there and was on screen, I was like, Oh man, can Tobey Maguire still act? Like, does he still have it? I felt like a nervous parent where I was like, oh man, are these young guys just going to like eat his lunch and he's going to be totally lost? I feel like the Tobey Maguire from the Sam Raimi movies was back here. I felt like, oh, this is who he was only 20 years later. He was still very much that character. He still like had these, you know, things. And I just thought seeing him on screen and the way he was, and he, he did have this older brother vibe, and he had empathy, and he had caring. Even in that final scene when Andrew Garfield is there, and he's, like, totally hurting. I just thought Toby played that so well. And so I feel like all the love is going to Tom Holland. All the love is going to Andrew Garfield. But Toby Maguire actually really did an incredible job as well. I think he centers the emotional mentorship of Tom Holland's Spider-Man. Because I think it's, it's, it's so interesting where they put them in their journeys, like as, as the screenwriters. So it feels like Andrew Garfield is still figuring it out, right? Like um, he's talking to Toby Maguire and, you know, like, hey, like, do you have a girl or anything? And he's like, no, I don't really have time for anything that's not Spider-Man stuff right now. You can tell he's still processing. He's talking about like how he quit pulling his punches, right? That he's like dealing with the rage and he's on the other side of it. But like, he's not centered. He's not settled. He still has work to do, right? He's kind of like mid thirties Spider-Man. Whereas you get the sense that like Tobey Maguire Spider-Man is like, he's seen enough of life now that he knows what's important, right? He figured out how to make things work with MJ and he's not, not like, Oh yeah, we fixed it. And like, we lived happily ever after. It's like, it took a while, but like we found each other is how they say it. Yep. So you have this stages of what I feel like is like life, right? Of like how you deal with your own stuff as you, as you grow up and then the wisdom you get with age. And even if like, it didn't all work out perfectly, you go, okay, like, I know what's important. Um, Bro, I think that's such a great analogy of what it is, because you really do get Tom Holland, who's really young, idealistic, but making a mess out of everything. You get Andrew Garfield, who's frankly, like, broken. You're like, Spider-Man needs therapy. Like, every time (laughs) he's on screen, you're just like, I'm feeling for this guy. And then you get uh, Tobey Maguire, who's like, okay, yes, I've seen some really hard things, yes, I've been through some really hard things, but I'm going to be okay. And you guys will be okay too. And that three levels of those guys in different places, again, just that's what made this movie special. Okay. So what about, are there any other characters other than Spider-Man? I said Spider-Man. Any other than our three Spider-Men who uh, really stuck out to you? Anyone else who stuck out? I was blown away by Zendaya in this movie. I thought her performance and her, like, the MJ Peter Parker relationship in this was 
maybe my favorite of any of the Spider-Man's relationships in any movie. I agree. And the thing that I love that they did about this Spider-Man franchise is because they knew that they didn't need to origin story Spider-Man because we've seen it enough. They really took their time building to certain things and things that we got in the first movie with Tobey Maguire, great power comes great responsibility, getting together with MJ, leaving MJ all happens in Tobey Maguire's first movie. They save all of that really until this movie for Tom Holland and with the case of the MJ relationship I felt like it gave it such a wonderful chance to like marinate and not feel like high school puppy dog love which is what I normally feel like about these kind of characters like I truly honestly believe that they were in love with each other because I've watched them grow from being acquaintances to friends that were just kind of flirting to where they are here And so at the end, when he chooses to leave her for her own good, I almost started crying, which I definitely don't in the Tobey Maguire one. I was like, what are you doing, man? That's dumb. Stay with MJ. But in this one, it like you've seen so much of their relationship and their growth. And I think Zendaya acts so well in this movie. She's so authentic with him that it was really, really powerful to me. That's a great answer. My answer is Green Goblin, played by Mm -hmm. William Dafoe. We've talked so much about... (laughs) Spider-Man and all the different Spider-Man, but we haven't talked much about the villains in this podcast, and we need to give them some love, because both Alfred Molina, who I think is great, and Jamie Foxx is a little underused, but William Dafoe, one thing that's so interesting is one of the big criticisms about the original Spider-Man is you have this Oscar winner, incredible all-time actor, and then you put him in a Power Rangers suit for the whole movie, and so William Dafoe never really gets to cook. He never really gets to chew the scenery. And then in this movie, what was so interesting is very early on, there's this shot of like the Green Goblin mask laying right by the dumpster. And it's just like, that's going to stay there because we are going to see William Defoe's face. And man, he gives his all every time he's on there. He is just like full villain. He's just going for it. And I just it was so fun to see him at that level. I think if there is a criticism that I do have about many Marvel movies is like their villains are not that memorable. Like, yes, there's Thanos and Endgame and Infinity War, but you go through the other movies and I'd say, name five Marvel villains and you would have to really think deeply about it. You're like, uh, I'm not, I'm not right. sure. I'd be like, uh, Loki, so, Killmonger, yeah. other ones. Yeah. <laughs> and so to really think, and then, but I was like, this William Defoe is giving a villain performance and he's so evil and he's so nasty And just watching him go in that sort of way was so good. And so even like as an actor, him being able to redeem his own story and his own narrative with that character, I thought he was my other most meaningful character. I think the screenwriters are like the unsung heroes of this movie for sure, because like them sitting in a room had to have been like, who's the best Spider-Man villain in any franchise of all time? Right. Right. And the I mean, the answer is like. Willem Dafoe, right? And so to make right. him the one who ends up being the ultimate big bad of this movie, if it had been me, I would have been like, oh no, we need like a new a new bad guy to be the big bad that's like from, from Tom Holland's universe. But like when you look at this menagerie of spider villains, like who's the ultimate Spider-Man bad guy? It's Willem Dafoe. Like he's so good. Well, and they even do something really interesting with Alfred Molina, who I also think is great in this movie, where he gets to be a little bit of the hero. He's actually, like if you watch that battle, Part of the reason it turns is because he's the one who like has a moment of empathy. And even that's true to his character, which his character was. He's a good guy who kind of got controlled by this octopus robot brain. Like I can't explain the science behind it, but, you know, deep down, (laughs) he's this he's this good guy. And that really resonated through as well. And so, yeah, those those guys and those layers were really fun for me. Big, big question, though. What do you think this movie is trying to say? If you had like an argument. What would it be? I think all the themes that we've talked about are in here, but I think the big closing thing that it's trying to say is there is a cost to being a hero, and that cost bleeds like not just you, but it affects other people. Mm-hmm. And, and really, I think what's interesting is it's not really about being a hero. I think this movie is actually about celebrity. They spend, They give a lot of time to Jameson's character and his, like, reality show or I, I don't know what Fox Newsy sort of show of like who is Spider-Man and that sort of it's stuff like, like Alex that's Jones ripoff. 
Yeah, and they keep cutting back to that actually quite a bit during the movie. And I think this movie is about like, okay, if you're doing something great, it actually affects other people. And so the heroic thing sometimes is to distance yourself from that. And so I thought the like meaningful scene that really tied that all together was what you referenced earlier, which is when he goes back to the donut shop and he's there and then he sees her and he's like, I'm going to say something to you. And then he promises her. He's like, I'm going to go find you and I'll tell you everything. And then your memory will come back. And then he has that moment where he finds her and you can tell it's right on the tip of his tongue. He wants to tell her. And then he just says, thanks for the coffee and leaves and sees that they're going off to college. And on the way home from the theater, my daughter was so upset. She's like, he lied to her. Why did he not tell her that said that he straight up lied to her and she did not understand. And I said, honey, sometimes when you're trying to protect someone, you have to serve them over serving yourself. And that's what being a hero is. And that to me, that's the heroic moment that they're really trying to do is like he he wants to have his cake and eat it, too. Right. Early on in the movie, he's like, hey, I want them to forget me but not Aunt May and not this, not that, you know, and he goes into all of it. And it, yeah. it's almost even a little hokey the way that scene's there. But then he pays it off, which is like, I can't have my cake and eat it too. I, if there's a reason that they're safe and okay right now, and I can't bring them back into this because that may hurt them again. So their safety is more important than my happiness. And him coming to that conclusion, I think is like, ultimately like what this story is about. It's the same conclusion that, Toby Maguire reaches at the end of Spider-Man 1. He gets together with MJ, she's his dream girl, but at the Osborne funeral, he's like, hey, like, we have to break up. It's the same thing of, like, people who are close to me are going to get hurt. But the fact that it's slow-brewed in this one up to this moment, and even the writing of it, is he's about to tell her, and she pushes her hair back, and he sees the Band-Aid on her forehead from where she got hurt during the battle. He mentions it, and and she goes, you know what? It doesn't really hurt anymore. And that's the line that makes him put the thing in his pocket and and then the idea of like we love each other but her being around me actually hurts her and the distance it doesn't hurt anymore that was the best version of that scene we've seen that scene before we've seen that play out with other heroes being like oh people around me get hurt i have to distance myself and that i think paired with the scene where he says you're you're gonna forget me and she's like begging him like i don't want that And he says, like, it's the only way to me. That's like her star performance in the movie is that scene right there when she's like distraught that she's going to forget him. I just like I bought it. And then to see him have to make that choice, knowing he's breaking the promise. It's it's tremendous. Yeah, the stakes are so clear there. And I agree. It's like the end of Dark Knight. There's kind of the thing of like, I've got to be like, no one can know about me. Like he kind of has to keep wearing the mask or even more famously Superman two. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it has this kind of great ending where like he's there, he's like a mere mortal and then he becomes Superman again. And Lois Lane has to forget him. And he like gives her this magical kiss and she forgets him. Um, But it kind of erases everything else. And then it like resets things. And it's always like, okay, that's cool. And that's cute. And like, Spider-Man No Way Home is aware of all those other movies and they're like, we're going to do this scene in a way that you've never seen it before. And again, it just leans back onto because there's so many other layers of so many other movies and time we've spent with them. It's actually where being a sequel is a strength versus being a sequel is a weakness. And so much of this movie. It's almost as though the whole movie is an argument for what the line with great power comes great responsibility actually means. Mm, That's great. That's like the almost cliched, but like memeified version of Spider-Man now, right? Like, yeah, yeah, we know. There's even like a joke about it in the animated Into the Spider-Verse. Like someone tries to say it and one of the other Spider-Man is like, don't you dare? Don't you say it? Yeah. Um, But like the placement of it within this franchise at the tail end of these other franchises within this story about is it more important to help the villains? And the villains killed the woman who asked me to do it, who I love the cost of that and the the cost of that responsibility of doing the right thing. I think you're right. It really is a movie about the cost of doing the right thing. It just lands the plane on it so well. Okay, I have one more category, bonus category. We're adding this to the meaning of the movie. Yep. So here's our bonus category, which is if you like Spider-Man No Way Home, you might also like. My buddy Wesley said, hey, you should add that category. Kind of like when you're in the bookstore and there's a... Hey, if you like this author, you might also like this is our version of that. If you like Spider-Man No Way Home, you might also like. And um, I'm not going to pick any MCU movies for this. I'm actually going to pick Looper, which is uh, 
another Ryan Johnson movie. He directed Last Jedi, but this this movie in 2012 called Looper. It's got Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It's got Bruce Willis, and it's about all the, this kind of multiverse. Got Emily Blunt. It's got Emily Blunt. Don't be sleeping on Emily Blunt. She gives a great performance in this movie. She's she's awesome, and and just kind of there's there's a bit of a multiverse, but also like reliving things and like different universes coming together and time travel, and it's just very much like. Um, this metaphysical, like, okay, how your past uh, influences your future and how your future self is at war with your past self and it does it in a sci-fi way. That I can't even explain this plot. It's super complicated. But if you have not seen Looper, I think it's on Netflix right now. And if you have not seen it, it is a great sci-fi ride. If you love sort of the coming of age story of Spider-Man in this one of like right at the end of of high school trying to figure out like how do I be an adult and a grown up? What does that mean? There's this movie. uh, It's an early Miles Teller movie called The Spectacular Now where he plays a popular high school kid who's actually like an alcoholic um, who's trying to figure out who he wants to be, what that means and uh, is dealing with parental issues, dad issues and then also like falling in love. And I think there are similar um, depth of character in the two coming of age stories. So if you liked that romantic and growing up element of uh, Spider-Man Knowing Home, I would say you'd like Spectacular Now as well. I've never seen Spectacular Now. I'm putting it on my list. I love Miles Teller. And so that sounds awesome. So Looper and Spectacular Now are if you like Spider-Man Home, you might also like. Hey, Andrew, good job today. Hey, thanks. You know, watching one of the coolest movies of the uh, last 12 months makes for a fun podcast. And we would love to hear what you think. We actually have a Meaning of the Movie Facebook page, and we have a Facebook group as well. And so if you want to jump on that group, tell us what movies you like. Tell us what you thought about the podcast. Uh, Give us ideas for future episodes. Uh, Look us up on Facebook. I'll put that page in the show notes. Otherwise, like, subscribe, and we will see you next time on The Meaning of the Movie.